My major pain has, has been invisible. The mobility aid makes it better. It gives me freedom. It can get to the core beliefs we have about ourselves. Don't ever think you're alone. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Christy about her constant anaphylactic reactions. Christy has a wide variety of extreme allergies. As she says, you could walk into her apartment with a bag of shrimp and she would immediately get sick. Christy has at least one anaphylactic reaction per month because her body actually has an anaphylactic response to her own menstrual cycle. She has a condition called adenomyosis, which is sort of the opposite of endometriosis, which we covered on the show a few weeks back. Endometriosis involves extra endometrial tissue growing on the outside of the uterus, whereas adenomyosis involves extra endometrial tissue growing within the confines of the uterus and into the uterine wall. This causes heavy bleeding, painful cramps, and longer periods. Christy has also been diagnosed with cyclical vomiting syndrome, POTS, or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and some sort of mast cell issue. What this amounts to is that Christy is extremely sensitive to her environment and to foods, and the slightest trigger can send her into an anaphylactic vomiting episode. We talk a lot in this discussion about how serious allergies can be, and how oftentimes in media, allergies are the butt of a joke. Even though allergies can be incredibly disabling, Christy has had an extremely difficult time getting doctors to take her seriously. She's experienced medical gaslighting over and over again, as well as being accused of drug-seeking behavior when she was only seeking help. We also talk about ableism in society, and towards the end of the podcast, she made some really fascinating points about how a lot of our ableism issues go beyond ableism itself and into the fact that a lot of our systems in this country are founded on the concept of eugenics. This is something I'd never heard before, and I found what Christy had to say to be extremely fascinating. I was familiar with the concept of eugenics because, you know, I'm a Star Trek nerd, the eugenics wars... Cotton, Noonien, Singh, all that stuff. But I, I thought that at the beginning of the podcast, I would give you a frame of reference for anyone who is not familiar with the concept of eugenics. Uh, this is the Oxford Dictionary definition of eugenics. The study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of heritable characteristics regarded as desirable. Developed largely by Sir Francis Galton as a method of improving the human race, eugenics was increasingly discredited as unscientific and racially biased during the 20th century, especially after the adoption of its doctrines by the Nazis in order to justify their treatment of Jews, disabled people, and other minority groups. So at the end of the podcast, we talk a bit about this concept that people that don't fit into the norm of what society considers to be desirable are often treated as disposable. It's really, really interesting stuff. I found myself nodding my head over and over as I was listening back to this podcast. This is a real head nodder of a podcast because a lot of what Christy has to say is so relatable and just rings so true for the experience of myself as someone living with chronic illness in this country. And a lot of it is also just super shocking. You know, what someone with this type of anaphylactic reaction to the world has to live with is shocking. So, yeah, another really great episode for you today that I'm very excited to share in just a couple minutes. 
At the end of every episode, I always give our guests an opportunity to plug anything that they'd like to share. And at the end of this episode, Christy will tell us that she's actually a published theologian. Christy will tell us about being a divinity student. And at the end of the podcast, mentioned that one of her proudest achievements is actually being published. But she couldn't remember the name of the book, uh, the collected work in which her essay appears. So I told her that I would share that with you at the beginning of the podcast, so she could send that information to me. And I've got it for you. So the book is called Proverbs from the Wisdom Commentary Series by Alice Ogden Bellis. So if you'd like to look it up, that's where you can find Christie's published essay. I am pre-recording this intro as I did last week because I am about to leave town, and I just want to make sure I have two podcasts ready to go for, you know, the week and change that I will be out of town. Andy and I are traveling for a wedding, and in fact, I'm actually recording this intro on the same day that I recorded the intro for last week's podcast with Amy, and it's actually the day that I released the podcast from two weeks ago uh, with Danielle talking about her experience with dental issues and how she lived for five years in excruciating pain because she couldn't find a doctor or dentist willing to help, and at one point she actually survived an attempt to take her own life. And I've already started to get some responses to that podcast, you know, this is all happening on this one day, but I just wanted to share this response that I saw on TikTok. And this is from our friend Brooke, who's appeared on the podcast twice now, but Brooke says, I listened to this last night and was shocked by the timing. I had some dental work done several weeks ago and now have damage slash infection from the numbing shots. I felt so much of this episode. You go to the dentist and they refer you to a medical doctor. You go to a medical doctor and they refer you back to the dentist. I have never struggled with feelings of unaliving, but the pain I have experienced the past several weeks has made me on the brink. I don't know how Danielle endured this for five years. It's horrible and I am no stranger to pain. Hugs, Danielle. Thank you for sharing your story. It couldn't have come at a more relatable time. Anyone who's heard Brooke talk on the podcast know that she's already going through so much. And to have anything else go wrong on top of that is so overwhelming. So uh, my heart goes out to, to Brooke for what she's currently experiencing. And, you know, I was just amazed at this comment, just thinking about the fact that Danielle suffered through so much for five years and how by sharing her story, hopefully she can give a little bit of encouragement to someone else going through something similar that it's possible to make it through. Uh, so, Brooke, we're all here for you. We support you. We care about you and your journey. And if there's anything that we can do for you as a community or that I can do for you, please let me know. When the people we go to for help refuse to help and hold us up in our times of need, we got to hold up each other. So, as I mentioned, I am currently traveling as this episode is being released. I should be heading back home. Uh, so, I'm very hopeful that there will not be a gap in the podcast, but it is possible that there will not be an episode next week. Uh, you know, like I said, I'm recording this in the past, so I have no idea how I'm feeling at this moment, how my health has held up over the traveling. Uh, I've talked a bit on the show about how I'm trying some new medications, and I seem to be having some more energy recently, and it came at a great time because I'm about to head out on this trip, uh, and then I'll be back in town for a week, and then heading back out to Tahoe with Andy and her family, so it's a crazy month for me. Uh, I, I don't know exactly if episodes are going to come out as normal. Um, I have a podcast recording scheduled for that week when I am back in town in between my two trips. So hopefully you'll be hearing that next week. Um, and if not, there might be a week break in the podcast, and then hopefully I'll be back the week after. So fingers crossed, I'm doing everything I can to keep this going smoothly. Uh, but you know, can't see the future from where I'm at now. And 
with chronic health. It changes day by day, hour by hour. So who knows how I'm going to be feeling when I get back to town. If there's no show next week, I'll let you know on uh, TikTok and likely Instagram as well. Um, But if not, we'll have a show. And then I'll let you know also on TikTok and Instagram. So make sure you're following us on TikTok and Instagram at Major Pain Podcast. Extra special thank you to our community of listeners who are supporting this podcast on Patreon. Patreon is a really great platform where creators like myself can earn regular income for creating podcasts like this, directly from the people who enjoy the show. So if you're interested in supporting this podcast, head to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast, and you can sign up for as little as $2 per month to support this podcast. That gains you access to monthly bonus episodes with myself and Andy, as well as a special on-air thank you, or you can sign up at $7 per month tier and you'll get a gift of a major pain coaster made by my mom. And I was just visiting my family and she made a whole new batch of beautiful major pain coasters that I brought home. And you will also hear your name in the end credits of every episode, or you can sign up at the highest tier of $25 per month. And I will thank you in the beginning of every episode as well as the end credits. So extra special thank you to our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Our producer tier not only gets a Major Pain coaster, but a Major Pain tote bag, also made by my mom. And just as an aside, if anyone on the Patreon has not received their gift, please let me know. I've sent them all out uh, at this point, unless you just signed up in the month of June. So if you didn't receive one for one reason or another, please let me know. I want to make sure you get your gifts. If we have any new patrons so far in the month of June, I will announce that when I get back to town. So you can sign up to support this podcast at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast, or you can head to our website, majorpainpodcast.com slash support to learn about all the ways you can support this show. We actually have a brand new way that you can support this podcast, and that is by clicking our link to sign up to participate in research studies through Rare Patient Voice. So there's a really exciting opportunity. You can earn $100 per hour by participating in a research study if you are selected to participate. So if you have any sort of chronic illness diagnosis or you are a caregiver, Click our link, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast to sign up with Rare Patient Voice. They will connect you with researchers who are developing products and services which can help you and others with your condition. These researchers need patient input so that they can develop products and services that have a meaningful impact on patients' lives. So if you have a condition, either a rare or even a non-rare diagnosis, and you'd like to participate in a research study, you can earn some money and also support this podcast at the same time by clicking our link that you can find in the description of this podcast, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast. I'll remind you before we jump into our episode today that I am not a healthcare professional of any kind. I'm just a content creator. So please make sure you are not taking any action based off of what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our fantastic episode with Christy about her anaphylactic reactions and the rest of her chronic illness journey. Christy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you today. We we already just started chatting and I was like, we got to we got to start recording because this is some good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um I've seen your TikToks and I and you're obviously very knowledgeable about, you know, living with chronic illness and 
Uh, I'm really excited to share your perspective and share your story today. Um, I'm excited to share too. So Christy, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Um, so I am 44 uh, as of this April, and um, I am a sometimes divinity student studying to be a chaplain in healthcare, uh, not hospitals anymore, but definitely still interested in doing something healthcare related. And my major pains are I have, um, well, I'm living with POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. I have a mast cell issue. Um, I have never had the genetic testing and I don't know um, if it's like mast cell activation or disease or syndrome or, you know, because there's MCAD and MCAS. I don't know if there's a difference in my research. I haven't been able to tease out any difference. I think it's just um, kind of like what doctor likes what name. Hmm. Um, I also suffer from or I live with anaphylaxis, which means that, yes, I have allergies um, that are separate from my mast cell issue. Um, and even though anaphylaxis is often um, not considered its own symptom, I am someone who experiences at least one anaphylactic reaction a month, um, if only when I have my uh, period, because I also have adenomyosis, which is... Um, I like to describe it as a self-contained form of endometriosis. So most people know what endometriosis is. It's when you have extra endometrial tissue that grows outside of the uterus. Yeah. Um, adenomyosis is when you have extra endometrial tissue, but within the confines of the uterus. Mm. And what it does is it grows through the uterus into the muscles that surround the uterus. Wow, that um, sounds very so, painful. <laughs> like, well, very much like adenomyosis, I mean, very much like endometriosis, it is um, one of the, the, some of the major symptoms are um, very heavy bleeding, um, very uh, painful cramps, and um, longer, more prolonged periods um, than other people may experience. Um, and that's because as the endometrium grows into the uh, muscles surrounding the uh, uterine wall, it becomes more and more uh, painful. Um, and that, that's that. And so it's actually something that is often not caught until it's in more advanced stages, because um, even though heavy cramps painful cramps and heavy bleeding are not considered normal periods. Most women who have painful cramps and heavy periods are dismissed for so long. Um, for I had heavy cramps, uh, I mean, heavy, heavy bleeding and painful cramps for the longest time. And I just thought it was normal. And even when I learned that it wasn't normal, I had told my gynecologist about it and she was like, well, you know, I didn't seem to be having any symptoms that were out of the ordinary um, until about maybe five years ago now. Um, I almost passed out in the hallway of my apartment from the pain from my cramps. Um, and when I went to the doctor, uh, my, my gynecologist, um, she ordered ultrasound and, uh, from the pelvic ultrasound, they were able to determine that I did have adenomyosis. Um, and in my own research, one of the things that I've discovered is that it's not really discovered until it is, you know, more advanced. And, um, 
it can affect fertility. I, um, I'm kind of too old and too sick at this point to be worried about having children. Um, so I'm not sure how it would affect my fertility because I'm not trying to use it, but it, it can affect people's fertility. Um, and it's just painful and uncomfortable. And, um, the way it interacts with my period, I mean, with my other conditions, because it does interact with my other conditions, is that when you are about to start menstruating, all of the mast cells in your body start to degranulate, which means they become unstable. And when you have a mast cell activation um, issue, the mast cells in your body are inherently unstable and degranulate often. They don't know why, um, unprompted. And so people who have mast cells can have aller allergic reactions to things that they are normally not allergic to because the mast cells in their body have become unstable. Mm -hmm. And for me, with my adenomyosis, because the mast cells in your body are automatically unstable as you enter menstruation, I literally have an anaphylactic reaction to my period. So wow. every month with <laughs> my period, I will vomit and have a full on anaphylactic reaction as if I had eaten something that I was allergic to, even though I'm not. And just because I am allergic to the chemical processes that go on Whoa. when my when I start to menstruate and most people would be like oh well you shouldn't say you're allergic to it and it's just like from a lay person if you have something that goes on in your body and it results in anaphylaxis it feels like an allergy to me um you know I could be wrong but it feels like an allergy to me um and the way it interacts with my POTS is that I already have very low blood pressure POTS manifests in that many people either have very low blood pressure or they have very high blood pressure. And so people with high blood pressure, um, they are worried about activities, taking them into the stroke range. Um, mm. <clears throat> and especially with the tachycardia because movement and changing postures and people with high blood in, in, in most people with POTS experience a spike in blood pressure with a postural change. And in people who already have a high blood pressure, it puts you into the stroke range. But people who have a low pressure blood pressure like me, um, what happens in, in people like me is I'm often very tired and very sluggish. And um, I suffer from a lot of blood pooling. So like if I squat down for too long and the blood pools in my feet, I will actually start to get very dizzy. And one of the ways that I'm able to kind of mitigate that symptom is by staying super hydrated um, because in the, the, the easiest way for me to increase my blood pressure is to actually increase my blood volume by being as hydrated as possible. And so when I, um, because I have extra heavy periods, even though I'm technically not losing blood because it's not like, you know, the blood that you shed, the the, 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 the the blood that you shed when you menstruate is not coming directly from your blood supply. Mm -hmm. However, it is fluid that's in your body. Mm -hmm. And so because I get dehydrated, I have less blood volume. So um, I am more inclined to have a POTS flare around my period because of 
the amount, the lack of blood, the loss of blood volume, um, simply because of dehydration. And I'm also more inclined to have an allergic reaction to something environmental because I'm having an allergic reaction to the process of menstruation in my body. And so, um, it's weird because I'm extra itchy during these times, but I'm also extra tired and extra prone to just about everything. So, um, <laughs> wow. It sounds like you, you got a lot going on at once that, and they're all and, yes, interacting and, with each other. Um, yes. And I, yeah. So let's, let's dive into your, your history. So when did this all start for you? So I've been chronically ill since I was maybe 19, but wow. I didn't know that I was chronically ill then. Um, so when I was in college, I started having, um, I, I mean, I was a normal college student for like the first two or three years. Um, you know, I partied, I drank, you know, I like had a good time. Um, and as I started to like, kind of sort of like be like, oh, I have to graduate and like, you know, like be an adult and live a life. Um, and as I started to get really serious, um, like into my studies and like, you know, a major that I liked and everything like that, I also started to get really sick. Um, mm-hmm. And so the first time I was hospitalized, I think I was maybe uh, 19 or 20. Wow. Um, so I was home for the weekend. I, I might have been home for like break or something like that or the summer. Um, I can't quite remember. I think it might have been summer break. And I had gone out to um, dinner with my uh, friend and some of her friends and um, I got really sick at the restaurant. So when I first started getting sick, um, I would just start vomiting for out of nowhere for no reason. And it wouldn't be like, Oh, I'm a little sick. Like I don't feel well vomiting. It would be full on like projectile vomiting. Like I would be drenched in sweat. Um, and I actually ended up, so I couldn't drive because I was vomiting so hard. So my friend drove me home and um, I vomited all throughout the night and I actually started to go into shock. Um, So like I was laying in my mom's bed and I was like, I can't really feel my fingertips anymore. (laughs) Like they're going numb. And because I had been vomiting and sweating and everything like that, um, she actually took me to the ER because my mom is a registered nurse by training, but she actually worked for the uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid um, doing a a, a plethora of things um, during her career. So um, she took me to the emergency room and she was like, you know, this is not good. You're going into shock. So we went to the ER and they didn't actually know what was wrong with me. And um, I sat in the hospital for about, it was spring break. I sat, I was in the hospital for five days um, and they didn't know what was wrong with me. They ran a bunch of tests. They couldn't get me to stop throwing up. Um, and this was like the very late nineties. I think it was like maybe 98 or 99. And this is like the very beginning of the opioid epidemic. Like Mm. at this point, we don't even know it's an epidemic. Um, but I'm from the Philadelphia area. So I was in a hospital and at this point they have seen enough, you know, uptick in opioid related, like, you know, incidences that like they're automatically labeling me as drug seeking. And it's like, well, I'm not even asking for drugs. I'm just trying to figure out at this point what is making me, um, vomit. And I was in there for five days. Um, 
They didn't know what was going on because they thought I was drug seeking. They wouldn't give me any painkillers, even though I was in immense pain. They were giving me sedatives, but the sedatives weren't working. Um, They were giving me antiemetics, which in hindsight, knowing what I know now, they were actually making the situation worse because antiemetics, I'm allergic to them. So I have a, a whole adverse reaction. Also, I know now that the vomiting is actually a form of anaphylaxis. And Mm -hmm. so um, I was actually in full-blown anaphylaxis. At that point, it would be considered anaphylactic shock. My heart rate was not great. Um, And because I had vomited so much, I was low on electrolytes and they had to give me a potassium. And that's when I learned that if you're going to get potassium, um, you should this was this was 20 years ago so i don't know what they knew then but i know that it was very common for them to give you a potassium piggyback but that now a potassium piggyback runs into like it runs into the line with your bag but before it would be like the two running side by side and um i learned the hard way that potassium burns so um because of the way i was laying i ended up getting a potassium burn um, from the inside out. And I just had this, this, this long chemical burn that like traced my vein from Whoa. like my, my, my elbow, the, the inner cubicle space all the way up to where the IV was. So, um, at day five, you know, with a potassium burn and like, I'm not really getting any sleep because I'm not getting pain relief. I'm being sedated, but it's not really working. Um, I like, called my friend um who i had gone to dinner with and i was like i need you to bring me some weed and i you know <laughs> told my mom that like you know i'm checking out of here because they don't know what's wrong with me and i was like i'd rather go home and sit in the shower and try and you know like get relief that way so i ended up checking myself out of the shower and i mean checking myself out of the hospital against medical orders uh would not be the last time um and going home and it took about two days for me to stop vomiting completely, but um, I got more relief at home um, from marijuana than I did at all. But that started my journey into trying to figure out what was going on, because like the first time it happened, it was like, oh, well, you know, this weird thing happened to me. I didn't really think anything of it. Um, probably another maybe three or six months went by before it happened again. And so for about two or three years, every three to six months, I would just get really sick mm. um, and I would vomit and I would end up in the emergency room. Um, and eventually, because I was in a lot of pain, um, they didn't know what was wrong with me, but I went back and, you know, eventually they would start giving me pain meds. Um, and I went to go see a GI doctor and um, it took the long story short is that um It took about 10 years for me to get a diagnosis of just why I was vomiting. Mm -hmm. And that turned out to be cyclic vomiting syndrome. But like, we don't know why. So idiopathic. Mm. Um, And and I'm sure, as you know, that like the last thing that you want to hear is somebody give you like a, a pseudo diagnosis. Like we think we know what's wrong with you, but also idiopathic, which means we don't actually know what's wrong with you, but you've got a cluster of symptoms. So we're going to call it a thing because you're clearly actually sick. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. you probably, we, we the, the doctor probably thinks you need a psych consult because um, every step of the way uh, on my journey to get a diagnosis and even 
after I've had a diagnosis, I've been like told that like, you should probably get a therapist. And it's like, well, one, I have a therapist um, (laughs) because chronic illness in and of itself is maddening. But um, aside from that, now I have a therapist just because I know that you guys are going to try and say that, like, I'm doing (laughs) this for attention. And I think the worst part about that is that anybody who knows um, what the chronic illness diagnosis journey is like, um, First of all, on average, the average person in the United States takes about seven to 13 years to get a chronic illness diagnosis. Mm. Um, And normally the first set of diagnoses you get are not right, um, (laughs) but they lead you, you know, on a path towards the correct thing, usually, hopefully, even if it's, you know, a circuitous route. Um, But at at one point I, I, I just got a therapist because it was like, I need to be in somebody's mental health care just to prove to you that like, I'm not doing this for the sake of attention, which is the wildest, most ridiculous accusation because like no person with a chronic illness, especially while you're going undiagnosed is having a good time. Like, you know, like, and no, nobody is paying attention to you after like the second or third year of like your mystery illness. Like your friends are like, I, if you still have friends, um, are like, talk about anything but your health. Yeah. Um, you know, like they don't care. They don't want to know. And if you're really sick and you can't work, you really don't have anything to talk about, but your health, because it's like you're in survival mode. You don't feel well. You're not doing well. You don't know how to make yourself feel better. You don't know what to do to manage your symptoms. And part of the reason why you're like desperate for a diagnosis is because it's like, I just want to know if what I'm doing at this point to take care of myself is actually the right thing. Is there some medication that could make this better? Um, and depending on what year you're in or how jaded you've become depends on whether or not you think there actually is a cure or treatment that is going to magically put your life back um the way it was before you first got sick because i think one of the hardest realities for me even post diagnosis is that like oh this doesn't get better Hmm. (laughs) now i just know what's wrong um (laughs) and and even for me it's like you know it's great that I have a diagnosis. It's great that I know exactly what's going on with me, but also um, there's nothing really I can do about it. So it's like, yes, I I manage my symptoms a little bit better. um, And yes, diagnosis can lead to an improved quality of life. But by the time you actually get a diagnosis, you've been broken so long that like some of the brokenness is actually irreparable. And not reversible. And I think one of the hardest things is understanding that had I not been undiagnosed and untreated for so long, I probably would not be um, as disabled as I am. Um, And I don't necessarily know that that is the case for me, um, but it definitely is a thought that you have along the way as you are deteriorating. Because most people I know who have been on any kind of chronic illness journey had a period of being very sick and undiagnosed. And there is a marked period of deterioration that comes with that, you know, and it's your quality of life. um, It's your ability to be social. 
um, and to go out and to do things. It's like everything stops. Um, and then for me, like with the vomiting, it's like, well, I, I want to go to this restaurant with you guys, but the smell of food makes me sick. Um, and I'm not sure like what it is about the food that I'm smelling that makes me sick. Now I know that like I, I'm airborne reactive to seafood and tree nuts, um, most specifically peanuts. So like I'll never walk into a Chinese restaurant because between the peanut oil and like any seafood that may be cooking, like it's a wrap. Um, also, oddly enough, truffles. Um, that was an expensive lesson. I took my mother out for Mother's <laughs> Day one year and um, I've been working in restaurants and we went to a restaurant near my house. And even though I didn't work there, I knew a bunch of the people who did work there. And so we got like a bunch of amuse bouches and we got like something with truffle oil on it, which is like, you know, it's expensive. It's like, you know, a, a, a big it's not a big deal, but it's not a small thing. It's not like, you know, they're giving you, you know, like soup or something like that. Yeah. Um, Although we did get a little bit of gazpacho to it. Anyway, the, the <laughs> point is um, in the middle of the amuse, so we didn't even get to the meal. It had truffle oil in it and it was amazing, but I threw it up instantly. Um, mm. And then I went home and I puked for like two or three days after that. Um, so during, you know, the course of diagnosis and waiting and everything like that, as you're deteriorating um, or barely maintaining stability, um, so much of your life changes and even post-diagnosis for me at least things got better in that I better had a better understanding of what was going on with my body and um I knew what I could avoid mm -hmm. but it also was not because my diagnosis I'm, I'm basically allergic to life so <laughs> um my first diagnosis was cyclic vomiting syndrome and I had that for years um and then they gave me, there was like a push me, pull me with the Crohn's diagnosis. Like, yes, we think you have Crohn's, but no, we don't think you have Crohn's. Um, but also, even though we don't think you have Crohn's, you have Crohn's like symptoms. So please be in our uh, pharmaceutical study. Um, <laughs> and it which was weird because it was like, I don't, you know, like they, it was like, they wouldn't give me a diagnosis that they would like allow me to keep. Like I would go to the, the GI doctor and every other visit, it would be like, well, I'm not sure if you have Crohn's, but have you considered taking Remicade? And it's like, yes, I have. And like kidney failure, liver failure, and like some kind of weird cancer are like, you know what I'm saying? The side effects that they list on the commercial. Um, <laughs> and like, I don't, I'm not, that, that's, that seems like a lot. Um, Cause at the time I was, still in my like uh late 20s and it's like i don't really i i'm not at the point where i want to take medication that's going to cause liver failure um especially if you don't know that this is what yeah. is wrong with me so um i had the cyclic vomiting syndrome uh diagnosis idiopathic for years and then one day i had an allergic reaction to peanuts so i went to the allergist and i was like i think i'm having an allergic reaction to nuts and he was like, no, you're not. And I was like, I, 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 th I think so. Like I've got a hive on my stomach that I woke up with overnight. So I had a hive, one big hive that went from like just left of my belly button all the way around to like r over my kidney. So like I had this giant hive that wrapped all the way around my torso and the allergist was like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think this is the nut allergy. And I was like, okay, well, since I'm here, 
and I'm itchy. Um, <laughs> I would appreciate it if you would take some blood and could you just like humor me and do a full allergy panel? And he did. And when I went back to get my results, I was allergic to peanuts and tree nuts and legumes and grasses, corn, rice, wheat. I mean, the list of things that I was allergic to was actually longer than a list of things that I could eat at the time. Wow. Um, he never apologized, uh, but I, I, I was right. Um, so I found out from there um, because I was like corn. Like, what, what does it mean to be allergic to corn? Because I just feel like. Corn is in everything. Yeah. Um, and corn is literally in everything. So I joined a corn allergy group and um, I just have to say, because I feel like people who listen to your podcast probably know about this corn allergy group. It is controversial. I loved it. It saved my life. Um, but it is very, um, some people will call them anti-corn extremists. I will say <laughs> that they're just people who want to stay alive. Um, and, you know, the corn allergy is very weird. It affects people to varying degrees. And um, I would say of all the allergies I have outside of um, the allergies that I have that I'm airborne reactive to, corn is actually my most severe allergen. And it is the thing that um, it made it made me angry. Um, it gave me all kinds of like like it wasn't just that it gave me GI and skin issues, but it also had a very strong neurological component to it. Mm. Um, and so um, I, I, I love the corn allergy group um, and I needed to be an anti-corn extremist in <laughs> order to get to where I am now. I'm, I do not, I, I, I'll, you'll never see me eat a corn chip. Um, I'm never going to eat a, a, a corn on the cob or anything like that. Um, so I don't eat corn products but there are corn byproducts that i can tolerate um and mostly i i think it's because of processed foods um because i get so many of my calories from processed foods that i think that my body um does this weird thing where it's like you know we can't not eat all of the things that you're allergic to because like then you won't have any protein or fat or anything like that right um and when i ate a very strict no allergen diet um i was famished yeah. the whole entire time and i was constantly eating but i was hungry and i just wasn't as healthy um i think the best way i would describe it is um it just wasn't an appropriate diet for me. I didn't have enough of the nutrients that I was getting. And I think the best way to describe it would probably be like people who attempt a vegan diet, but don't realize that like, just because you are not eating meat and you feel a lot better, doesn't mean that you're getting all of the nutrients that you need. Like, you know, like there are certain vitamins that you need to be able to get from a non-plant source or um, for people like me, if you are allergic to legumes, then you can't not eat meat because you will never get a complete protein right. if you can't eat a rice and a, like a grain and a legume together because that's how you get your complete protein. So um, it was like I was eating what I thought was appropriate because I was not eating any of my allergens, but I was starving and underweight and um just not 
very happy because I was hungry. Like even when I would be eating something, I would still be hungry because I would know that like my body is craving something. And so um, from the corn allergy group, I learned about um, immunotherapy. So I started getting um, allergy immunotherapy um, from an allergist in uh, not too far um, from me in Maryland, um, cause I live in the DC area. And, um, as I, the immunotherapy helped me to be able to tolerate a lot of foods. I have not had an allergy test since I've started immunotherapy, but I can definitely tolerate in larger quantities, um, foods that I have tested allergic for previously, but also I couldn't eat them for an extended amount of time. They have an immunotherapy program at Johns Hopkins, and I think maybe Mayo or Cleveland is also running a similar program um, where they're giving sublingual they're, they're giving sublingual drops under the tongue, so drops mm. under the tongue um, that contain um, small increasing percentages of the allergen. And so they start out at a very teeny tiny dose and they gradually work their way up. And the thing about immunotherapy is that there are people who will be able to eat the allergens in small quantities. Um, the point from my perspective is not really to be able to consume your allergen. And the reason why I say that is because even when you are getting immunotherapy at Hopkins or any of the uh, different hospitals that are doing it, they let you know this is to build tolerance so that you can be exposed to a thing, not so that you can necessarily consume it. Because on the one hand, they will say that, oh, you don't have the allergy anymore. But on the other hand, they will say that at any given moment, you could still have an anaphylactic reaction and possibly die from this allergen that we have raised your tolerance to. And so it's this weird thing where you may be able to eat a peanut, whereas being in a room with a peanut, you know, a year and a half ago would have made you have a mm -hmm. ridiculous reaction. Yeah. But if you go out and eat a Snickers bar and die, ain't nobody going to be surprised, <laughs> you know? So yeah. it's one of those things where like, there are people who will get immunotherapy and they will consume their allergens. And I don't know how they fare, but I know for me, there are some things that I will never eat again. I will never eat fish again. I will never eat uh, shellfish or nuts or legumes again because my reaction to them is so violent, even on immunotherapy, that I just it, it would never be something that I would want to do. And even with corn, where I'm able to eat um, corn derivatives in smaller quantities, I'll never eat a raw like a, a, a straight corn product again, and I do my best to uh, limit what is in my diet. So I feel like um, once I got the immunotherapy and I started to stabilize, um, I realized from the people in the corn allergy group that like, I probably have some other stuff going on. And so I eventually went to go see an immunologist about having mast cell issues, just because the list of things that I was allergic to was so big. Um, and so when I went to go see the immunologist, she was like, oh yeah, you totally have mast cell. And I was like, dude, cause they, they're in order to get a mast cell diagnosis from some immunologists, 
you have to do all of this extensive testing or genetic testing and you have to like hit all these markers to for them to say yes you have a mast cell issue and we'll treat you and there are other doctors who are like yeah um if you're constantly having you know hives or eczema or you're literally having anaphylactic reactions and you symptom wise meet all of the criteria for a mast cell diagnosis i'm not really tripping off of this blood work because the reality is there's so much about mast cell that we don't actually know mm -hmm. um and we don't we only know as much about the immune system as we do because of the hiv aids crisis mm. so before hiv aids immunology was a specialty that people went into either because they were really fascinated by the immune system and they just wanted to on their own do that or it was a specialty because they didn't want to do GP or internal medicine. And, you know, people didn't think highly of immunologists. You know what I'm saying? Like it didn't get a lot of research money or anything like that. Um, they, they treated allergies, you know, and that was about it. Um, and I think that people from a medical standpoint, you know, from a, from a practice standpoint, were like, oh, you treat itchy kids, big deal. Um, but then AIDS came about and all of this research went into finding out about the immune system and trying to understand it so that they could figure out how to treat um, AIDS and HIV. And in doing all of that, we learned about the immune system. So most of what we know about the immune system, even for allergy people, comes from what they learned and gained from um, AIDS and HIV research. Wow. So it's still a relatively new field. And um, people, my experience with allergy is that first of all, most doctors don't even understand how allergy works. For 13 years, I walked into medical facility after medical facility, some of the world's best, Scripps in San Diego, um, you know, uh, Penn in Philadelphia, Jefferson in Philadelphia, Hospital Center in DC, like Georgetown. I've been to some of the best university hospitals in this country. And they had no idea that while I was vomiting, you know, and I would tell them I ate this, I smelled this. And then I started vomiting. No one ever gave me an allergy test. Wow. No one ever suspected that I had an allergy and none of them knew that I was actually an anaphylaxis. And so doctors don't really know a lot about allergy. They don't know what it looks like, how it presents. Um, I have a binder that I uh, tend to take with me to the hot, not so much now because I only go to certain hospitals. They have all of my records on file, all of my long list of allergies is on file. So um, I'm pretty, I'm in pretty good care when I go, but sometimes I will take my binder with me. Um, and I've had people, I've had nurses tell me you can't be allergic to this. And yeah. I'm like, but I am. <laughs> it's like that thing when you go in and, Ask the doctor, am I allergic to peanuts? And he says, no, without doing anything first, without checking you. Yes. Like that, yes. that assumption that nothing is wrong is the, the thing that many people are greeted with when they complain of issues to a doctor. It, exactly. And so um, a lot of people don't know a lot about allergy. They don't know how it presents. Um, and I find that people don't really take it seriously. And I think that one of the things with allergy, because um, for me, allergy is life-threatening. Mm -hmm. um, and for a lot of people, it's it's really life-threatening. It's not a joke. And I think one of the ways that ableism towards allergy manifests itself is that you only see allergy presented in 
media for the most part as the butt of a joke you know you think of hitch where it's like oh i want to go out on a date and you know i eat some shellfish and i have you know this huge allergic reaction but like the thing that nobody talks about is if you were to have an allergic reaction where your face was so swollen that you were basically like disfigured looking and you you felt like ugly and you didn't want to go out on a date like the underlying symptom, the other accompanying symptom that goes with that is that your airway is also as swollen as your face. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, the reality is somebody who would have a reaction like that wouldn't just have a swollen face and be like, oh, I don't feel well. Their tongue would be swelling. Their airway would be swelling. And your airways could be anything from your actual esophagus swelling. It could be the lining of your lung swelling. I've had pleurisy from an allergic reaction. So pleurisy is when the lining between the the lining of your lungs swell. So it's not that I didn't have fluid in my lungs as if I had pneumonia. I had fluid in the lining of my lungs, but it was so crushing that I couldn't lay down. um, And it felt like I was dying because I had pleurisy. So like you could have all kinds of airway obstruction from anaphylaxis. It could be that your lungs themselves actually swell. And so, you know, we see allergy as a joke, as something that moves plot forward or um, the one there's a, a, what's his name? The Scottish guy, David, but he used to play. um, He used to be Dr. Who. Uh, David Tennant. Yes. So David Tennant actually had a BBC movie where he um, it's it's this thriller where he ends up killing this man who had like been stalking. I I think if I remember correctly, it had been stalking him or something like that. But, you know, turn about a fair play. So um, this man who had been terrorizing him, he ends up killing him with an allergic reaction, which Mm. I mean, you know, that's okay, fine. People know that allergy can be deadly, but also now they know that you can kill me with my allergies. And so like allergy in media as like a plot device where it's like either the butt of a joke or, you know, like you use somebody's allergy against them to murder them. It makes people who have life-threatening allergies feel simultaneously hyper visible, you know, because it's like, oh, you know, like, I've seen, you know, stories in my corn allergy group of people with allergies whose family members who don't believe them, neighbors, mean spirited coworkers are literally trying to poison them because they don't believe them. And they just want to see what your reaction will be if I expose you to a little bit of this thing that you Mm. told me is life threatening or people don't take you seriously because, oh, it can't be that bad. Like, you know, you're probably just a little itchy. And it's like, no, I'm going to have bloody diarrhea for the next three weeks or I'm going to vomit for, you know, three or four days. And so allergy is a very serious thing and people don't really know how to treat it. And I think that when we talk about it, we only talk about it in terms of children. Um, And so that there's a controversy of like, should a classroom be peanut free or should a school be peanut free? And it's like, you know, I don't necessarily know if a high school should be peanut free as an adult who has, you know, gotten allergies late in life and had to navigate the world. But I'm pretty sure an elementary school should be peanut and latex free because small children don't know how to keep themselves or their peers safe, Sure, you know, and like 
what kid ever ate a peanut butter sandwich and, you know, really understood that, like, if you don't wash your hands before you go into the next classroom, because that's where the peanut free lunchroom is, then like you might actually kill Liam, you know, by accident. Or there was a case in the UK where a boy actually died because he was bullied and um, his bullies forced him to eat cheese and he ended up dying. But I'm trying to segue out of allergy being as serious as it is into how my my immuno my my immunotherapy has helped me but i still have very serious issues with allergy um and it's still very misunderstood by medical professionals and also um just the public at large and i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it a is a very new science a very new area of science that we're just understanding but also that media still treats it as a plot device you know you've never for for a series as peanut allergy is i've never seen or heard of a serious tv show that involves children where we had a serious conversation about how a character handles peanut allergy or anything like that. And like, I think we all, you know, especially people our age um, are familiar with, you know, sitcoms as, and the serious episode of a sitcom to, you know, address a social issue. And I mean, they still do that, you know, it's probably not as dramatic, um, but you know, that is still done. And I don't see that with allergy. Um, And even with pots, you know, um, so, so, one, how I found out I had POTS was as um, I went to go see my immunologist and I had been really tired um, and I, I had just been so tired and I couldn't catch my breath. And um, I was at this point, I was in uh, grad school because I am a sometime graduate student. Um, I'm getting my divinity degree so that I mm. can be a chaplain before COVID. I wanted to be a hospice chaplain post-COVID. I still want to be a chaplain, but as someone living with disabilities who is vaccinated, boosted, um, and also like housebound, because like most people, especially now that mask mandates are gone, are not particularly safe um, or behaving in ways that are mitigating any kind of risk. As a chaplain in a hospital, in a healthcare setting, you do not have the option to turn down patients. You have to see everyone regardless of their faith, regardless of whatever, you know, you could think of that would have you say, oh, I don't want this to be my patient. Um, And I got to say somewhere around like mid 2021, I was like, I don't want to give spiritual comfort to anti-maskers in a hospital because the hospital has told me we're not going to provide you PPE. You can just die. But show up for work because we need you. You're vital. Um, And I don't want to give comfort to people who don't want to wear masks or are all of a sudden shocked because I'm a human being um, and I I understand the limits of my compassion. And I just I, I think this is probably pretty controversial for a lot of people to hear, but I think a lot of disabled people probably understand and oh, yeah. feel the same way. I have no compassion for people this late in the game who were like, I didn't know it could be long-term. Like we knew by the end of 2020 that this was going to be a mass disabling event because by the end of 2020, we already knew about long COVID there's COVID induced pots, you yeah. know? And so like, I have no compassion for people who are not taking this seriously. And I, I, I just cannot 
put myself in the position to want to give spiritual comfort to people who really could care less if I die. Yeah, and you can't add on another, you know, full-time <laughs> illness on top of what you're already yeah. dealing with. Yeah. Yeah, like and 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 also the mental gymnastics that you have to do to extend compassion to people who would just as soon see you dead because they don't want to be inconvenienced and they want to eat, you know, at happy hour unmasked. Um, and you know, like I just, it's too much for me yeah, at this it's point. So, so it's so complicated. Like things, as things have opened up, I feel like a lot of these decisions have become more complicated, you know, like I, I'm also someone who is like, because I have a chronic illness, I can't really take any risks around COVID. Um, but I do, I want to like go out and live too. You know, it's, it's a weird calculation that you have to make. And and I'm in the same boat. And I think for me, um, one of the things that I find most depressing is that, um, normally I would go to museums or, you know, especially in DC, um, you know, the Smithsonian's are free and they're still free. And with the restrictions lifted now, you might have to get a ticket, but it's not timed entry anymore. But there's something about having to make a reservation for a ticket as a disabled person to go to a museum. There's something about that, that like, it just feels like burdensome Mm -hmm. Um, because it's like, I, I don't know if you can relate, but like, the days that I feel well enough that I want to get up and go out and do something, it's usually kind of spur of the moment. It's oh, like you course. wake up, Absolutely. you wake up, you get yeah. through your, your morning routine and you're like, you know what? I'm feeling really good today. Like, let's yeah. see what is going on in the world. And it'd be it, normally it would be like, oh, I'm feeling really good. You know, I want to go like, let me look and take a, 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 my pick of exhibits and let me go see what I want to see. Um, and now it's like, I can't just get up and get dressed because I feel well and go to the museum. Now I have to do the added step of going online and reserving a ticket. And it's just like that extra step. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people would be like, it's an extra step, like big deal. And it's like the amount of brain power it took to go online and make the reservation and like, make sure that like, it's going to send me a text and I can like have the ticket be sent to my phone. Like all of that has taken all of the energy that I had that I was going to use towards getting dressed and commuting. It's gone now. Like it has totally taken the momentum out of the situation. And so now I'm just going to sit. So I'm as a, as someone living with pots, I'm also deconditioned because I haven't really been anywhere or done anything since the first lockdown started. Um, and I used to walk a fair amount and now I, um, if I walk to the grocery store, which is like two blocks down the street, I'm winded by the time I get back. Yeah, totally. So when I got my POTS diagnosis, it was because I was so, so I was in grad school at the time. And the thing that made me say, you really need to go to the doctor is I used to walk a lot and I was actually walking up the stairs um, because the elevator had broken um, to get to one of my classes. And when I got to the top of the stairs, I was winded and not the kind of winded where it's like, oh, you know, I just walked up, you know, three flights of stairs pretty quickly. Like anyone would be tired. It was the kind of winded where it was like, I kept walking 
because I knew if I stopped, I may not make it. Like I may sit down in the middle of these steps and not actually make it to the top. And that's so it. I forced yeah. <laughs> myself to the top. And now that I have collapsed in this little chair um, in the classroom, I'm like, okay, I need to make a doctor's appointment because this isn't the kind of like, oh, you know, like it's been a while. So this, this is like something is, is going on. Um, Cause it wasn't even just winded. I was lightheaded. Mm-hmm. Like I felt like I was going to pass out. Um, so I went to go see the immunologist and I was like, yeah, I was like, you know, I've been tired and this and that. And she was like, oh yeah, no, you have a heart condition. She was like, that's, that's not the mast cell. That's POTS. I was like, excuse me. She was like, oh, so, um, I, I see nobody's told you. And I was like, no, they haven't. Um, and that's when I learned that m- people who have POTS, um, frequently also have a mast cell, um, issue and because they're the three amigos, they call them. And none of these three are anything that you would want to have. Um, is the other one is Ehlers-Danlos, right, which would yeah. be um, hypermobility. And I think what they're starting to find is that even in people who don't have an Ehlers-Danlos um, diagnosis and don't have any of the gen- genetic markers for Ehlers-Danlos, there's still a hypermobility component that comes with the POTS Mm. and um, mast cell combination. Um, And so I don't know if I have Ehlers-Danlos or not. I haven't been um, tested for it, Um, but I am hypermobile, always have been my whole life. My mother is hypermobile and um, she has actually been having um, her own joint issues of her own. And so she was recently tested for Ehlers-Danlos and she came up negative. I'm going to say that because, you know, um, I have 50% of her genes, that if she's come up negative, chances are I probably would not come up positive for the genetic component. But I know that hypermobility is um, an issue that I have. Like um, I'm double jointed in my hands and my, my shoulders, like. Um, yeah. And then the, and- the, the, there is the form, the, the hypermobile EDS, Ehlers-Danlos. There, there's mm-hmm. that one form of, of EDS that they have not identified a genetic marker yet. So it wouldn't come up positive, even if you had it. And that one's like a clinical sure. diagnosis. Um, I've learned a lot about this because we've had quite a few uh, guests on the, on the podcast with Ehlers-Danlos, the first of which had the, um, the, the triad, you know, mast cell, mm-hmm. POTS, and uh, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So, yeah, so it is still possible to test genetically negative for that and have the, the hypermobile form. That is very interesting because um, basically when my mother came back negative, they kind of like wrote her off as being like, you know, well, clearly hypermobility is not your issue because you don't have EDS. And it's like, I guess I should tell her that she should go back and uh, eat, well, actually she probably get another specialist. I was um, just going to say if that specialist sounds like if they don't know that, then they're probably not the person to see. <laughs> exactly. And, and I, um, I fire people all the time. My mother, not so much, um, yeah. in her approach to healthcare, but I will fire somebody in a minute. Like I will not go back. Um, when I'm admitted to the hospital, I have no problem telling a provider to, I don't, I don't want to be seen by this provider anymore, or I don't want this particular person to, um, like put me on somebody else's rotation. So, you know, we've, we've talked through a bit of your history going all the way back to 19 when you first started having these anaphylactic, anaphylactic vomiting uh, episodes. It sounds like before that, your life was relatively normal. Is that true? 
or um, health health wise? I would say yes and no. So I did. I never had any major health issues. Um, I had a lot of rashes as a kid. Like, mm. you know, I, I, I had eczema as a kid um, when I was in high school for probably the, my, the last three years of high school. I had terrible eczema on my hands. Um, and it was similar to, I don't remember her name, but a guest that you had on who also has Lauren. really bad eczema. Yeah. Yes, it was, it was similar that to was Lauren. That was the very first that- interview I ever recorded. Yes. yes. My friend Lauren. Um, Yeah. But it was so my hands were raw and they were like pink. Mm. And the it was it was it was seborrheic eczema. And so it was very kind of it weeped. Even if I didn't scratch it, it it just weeped and it got crusty and it was the kind of thing where I couldn't keep it, I had to keep it moisturized. But it also, I couldn't tolerate like putting lotion or anything on it. So it would be like only like Vaseline or like even baby oil was not good because the baby oil was both too thin and the scent would irritate me. I had it my first year of college and um, there was a little health food, you know, kind of like Botanica that was um, across the street from campus. And um, I went in there and they had like some kind of cream or oil or salve that somebody made. And I used that. Um, but I also uh, started taking burdock tea and I changed my diet a little bit. Like I didn't drink as much soda. And um, I think I stopped probably eating as much candy or, you know, like just minor superficial diet mm-hmm. changes. Yeah. Um, but I think the salve and the burdock tea more than anything helped to clear up my hands. Um Although in hindsight, now that I think about it, my hands cleared up and then I started vomiting. So I don't know what the trade-off to that yeah. really was. But there's no um, there's no knowing like what caused that shift in your body where you started vomiting and having these anaphylactic reactions, right? It just something just turned no, on around it just 19. Literally, yeah, literally one day, I, I I'll never forget the first time I vomited. Um I had been working in um so I was a I, w- I was an art history major but I had a printmaking minor and I'd been working in the studio I walked across the street with a friend to um go to the Howard Deli and I I had a tuna fish sandwich because I love their tuna fish sandwich I had a tuna fish sandwich and some potato chips and a soda and I like projectile vomited the sandwich and I ended up having to go home and I was like really sick for two days afterwards and I couldn't figure out what it is. I know now I'm allergic to eggs and fish and, you know, so like between the mayonnaise and the tuna, like those were two things. And I think what I could also say with the benefit of hindsight is that I would eat eggs and I would eat fish, but not together. And I would not have reactions to those two things, but I will never forget the tuna fish faithfully made me sick. And eventually I was like, well, I I guess I can't eat tuna fish anymore, but it was never like, oh, I don't want to eat tuna or like, well, I don't like mayonnaise. I never like mayonnaise. So like that would be the only time when I would really have mayonnaise, but I would eat fish otherwise. Mm -hmm. And it was never a problem. Um, But I I can look back on it now and say, oh yeah, it was definitely eating two allergens that was, you know, causing that. But there was no nothing. There was nothing about my life or anything that was going on that indicated all of a sudden that like I would just start throwing up food. Yeah. Um, And then there's like this line in the sand moment where your life is split, where like you have your life until 19, where you you don't have these reactions. You're able to go out and, 
you know, live your life without having to worry about these airborne allergens. Like you probably could have walked into a Chinese restaurant and not, you know, had an anaphylactic re reaction like you've talked about. And then after 19, you've been living with this ever since. So it's almost right. like you've had like two lives, you know, one where you were a little bit freer from these allergies and then one where it's kind of uh, enveloped your life. I would actually go as far as to say three because there was the time before I got sick, you know, when I was just normal, carefree, living my life, had a little bit of eczema and like, you know, it went away. Yeah. And then there was the period where it was like, well, clearly the things that I'm eating or smelling because um, for the longest time, like to smell chicken cooking or turkey cooking would like the instantly, as soon as I would smell like with Thanksgiving, Christmas, um, cause my mom likes Turkey. It, and the minute I would walk into her house and smell the Turkey, I'd be sick. Or sometimes I would make the Turkey and I would be sick making the Turkey. Um, and eventually I figured out, Oh, I can't eat this. And I didn't have an official allergy designation. And I would say to, I would tell clinicians both in the emergency room and actual doctors that I was going to see when I eat this, I throw up, I think I'm allergic to it. And I had numerous clinicians tell me, don't say that. Why? That is not like, like you, you can't say that you're allergic because you vomited. And I'm like, I didn't even think to have allergy testing them because somebody was telling me that I wasn't allergic Yeah, and it never. And, and I think because when you're sick and you're looking for a diagnosis, I think one of the things that I've learned in hindsight is that sometimes there will be things that are sitting right in front of your face <laughs> yeah, totally. and like, you just don't, you're, you're not catching on to it because you're so caught up in something else. And I think I was so caught up in being told that I was wrong about having an allergy and no one could explain to me why, except to say that that's not what an allergy looks like, except we know now that that's not true, but like, what would you call it if every time you eat something, you throw it up? Like it, it, it makes me feel like I'm allergic to it. Like I may not itch or have hives, but like, it's clearly my body rejecting something. And then even once I got my allergy test, um, there were some things where the doctor was like, well, this is an intolerance and not an allergy. And I would be like, well, when I consume it, it behaves like the things that I'm allergic to. So I'm going to call it an allergy. And I've had clinicians argue with me about the difference between an allergy and an intolerance. And I'm like, if you are saying that the difference between an allergy and an intolerance is that these Ig markers, you know, or these Ig, uh, uh, what are those things? The, the, the antibodies? The, yeah, if these IG antibodies are reactive, but these ones aren't, and you think IgG and Ig is the and, and IgM is the difference between an allergy and an intolerance, okay, fine from a <laughs> clinical standpoint, but from a practical standpoint, I can't eat any of these things right. because they all make me react the same way. And if the thing that I'm actually allergic to makes me react in the same way that the thing that I'm only intolerant to does, then like. I'm gonna call it an allergy, yeah. but back to what I was saying, which is that there would be, I, I would be having these symptoms and people would be telling me, you can't say that you're having this kind of reaction because you don't know for sure. And it's like, yeah, I don't know, but it's certainly behaving that way. Like, mm -hmm. so, you know, I guess so. I, I'm curious about 
the the before and after of this because this is something I have a little bit this is something I have a little bit of experience with is like you have you have this carefree life and you're able to do what mostly what you want and then all of a sudden millions of restrictions on food on activity and on the way that you are able to live so how does that feel do you have any anger around the unfairness of that so when i when i didn't know that i had an allergy but there were just all these things that i couldn't eat i was furious i was livid um and I would mourn every time I discovered I couldn't eat something. Mm. So it was like, I was angry at food. I was angry at just life in general because I wasn't allowed to participate. And it wasn't like anybody was keeping me out, but my body wouldn't allow me to participate. And then I don't know if you've had this experience, but like, if I would go out and I would get sick, then people would need to take care of me. And it would be like, I would feel bad because the whole point in going out was to go out and have a good time. And we would, it would go instantly go from being a good time to like, Oh my God, is she going to die? Um, <laughs> and, and it's because like, I will look like I do now, but if I ate something, like if, if, if somebody walked into my apartment right now with a bag of shrimp, like just like, and I could smell, I would instantly turn white. Ugh. I would start sweating. And I don't mean like a little sheen, because it's like hot outside. I mean, like sweat running down my face. Like I am dripping with sweat. I am like soaking wet. Um, Water is pooling in the palm of my hands, kind of sweating. And I can actually, I have lost 10 pounds vomiting, sweating overnight, you know? So I go from looking really animated and lively to being pale and sickly and like all of the it's it's just it's a complete change and it's very scary for people mm-hmm. who have to witness it yeah and it's the kind of scary because it's such a drastic change and it happens so fast and i'm instantly incapacitated that it's like i mean they know i'm not going to die but it's also like but what do we do yeah. and i'm used to it now so you know now like i'll i'll have to tell people like i'm okay don't worry, you know, because a lot of times um, when I have to tell people, you know, like, don't worry, it'll be like, I might be out somewhere. Because even now still, I'll go out with friends and I'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm about to be sick. And I'll have to call an Uber and I'll get in an Uber. And it's so weird because, like, I travel with a Ziploc, I travel with an empty, empty Ziploc bag, an empty zip gallon Ziploc bag so that I can vomit in the Ziploc bag and then, like, be able to close it up and not have to, like, leave a mess in the Uber. Um so like I'll have like my little Ziploc bag and I'll get in an Uber and I'll be like sweating profusely and like clearly not comfortable in pain. And I'll be like, okay, so I'm going home. I'm just going to tell you now I'm very sick, but it's an allergy. I'm probably going to vomit. Don't worry. I have had to convince a, a, a driver not to take me to the emergency room to please drop me home. I will be okay. I've been sick in hotels where like I had to call down to the front desk for something and they brought it to me and I've had to say to the person, please do not call the police. Please do not call the ambulance. I know that I look very sick, but I promise I will be okay. This is what's going on with me because I actually got sick when I was in Detroit once and they did call the police on me because I was so sickly looking and they actually took me to the emergency room um, and wouldn't let me like stay in my room and like treat myself because they were like, if you die, 
Like that's on us, especially since we know that you are in this condition. Um, and so now that I've been through it a bunch of times, you know, I can walk people through it. But when it first started happening, it would just be like, I was angry because it would be like, I can't even go out because even when I get sick, I end up feeling bad. And even though they're taking care of me, I'm still taking care of them because they don't right, right. really know what to do. But once I got my diagnosis, even though I had to cut out more food than I ever cut out when I didn't know what was wrong with me, I didn't feel like I was losing anything when I started throwing out bags of food from my cabinets. Um, or even when I got my diagnosis, I would try new foods or I would try and introduce new foods or I would try and eat something um, because like I would need food to be able to travel with. So I would try and like, you know, have snacks or something like that. And so I would try a new product and like my partner would come home and there would just be a bag of groceries like by the door. And I'd be like, these things cannot be in here <laughs> past tomorrow morning. Take them to work. Give them to your coworkers. I don't care, but it can't stay in here. And I mean, I've I've given away like, you know, super expensive bottles of olive oil, avocado oil, like just trying all different kinds of things because like this is supposed to be safe. This is supposed to be, you know, relatively like corn free or this is supposed to not have this ingredient in it. And once I had a diagnosis and I knew like, oh, I can't eat these things or I'm having a reaction to this and I actually have food allergies. So, yes. I can't just, you know, like, it's not like maybe I'll be able to eat this, you know, tomorrow. I didn't feel bad anymore because mm -hmm. the things that I wasn't allowed to eat were giving me quality of life. Whereas before things were just being taken away from me and there was no actual like reasoning for why I can't eat this, you know, because the doctors weren't saying that I had an allergy. They were like, you either need a psych consult or like you know, there's, there's, you know, something we don't know of that's wrong with you. And it's like, fine. But like, you know, everything I think felt like it was being taken away as a punishment, mm. you know, whereas when, once I got my diagnosis, it was like, no, I can't eat these things because I don't want to poison myself, Yeah, you know? And so it's like in a matter of hours, like the difference between not being able to eat things with an allergy diagnosis and without an allergy diagnosis was like, I can't eat this. I don't know why, but like, oh, well, whereas, you know, and, and, and I, I'm mourning the loss of a food that I love, you know, and I, and I don't know why I can't eat it. Whereas now it's like, oh, no, I can't eat that. And I don't miss it at all because like I like not being poisoned. Um, yeah, you need to be armed with knowledge and you need doctors to help you to find that knowledge of getting that diagnosis. But then it can completely, you know, restructure your whole life in such a positive way when you finally understand how to not poison yourself. Exactly. And 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 so I, I understand how you feel like because I've been listening to the episodes and like I I know the disappointment of going in. And getting testing done and being like, yes, I may actually come away from this with an answer. And then just the like the despair of, well, if this isn't it, then what is it? Yeah. You know, because it's like, well, I read about this and this seemed like it was already going to be pretty bad. And I've tried to like wrap my brain around what life is going to be like post this diagnosis, because surely this is it. You know what I'm saying? Like I check all of the boxes and then to be like, no, that's not it. 
and to then still be on this very restrictive diet or routine and to not have any answers it's like you feel like everything you do is kind of futile you know whereas once you know what is happening even if you're still not able to do as much it's a totally different perspective because it's like well yeah no it's like now like like so I'm allergic to hot. I'm I'm allergic to the heat, but I'm also allergic to the cold. So I have to maintain like a steady uh, body temperature. And it's like, before I knew what was wrong, I hated that I couldn't go outside and enjoy like nice weather like everybody else. Mm-hmm. But now that I know that like, oh no, girl, you allergic to the sun. Or like, if you get too hot, like it's rat- it's curtains for you. Like, I don't feel bad about not going outside now. Yeah. So- yeah, that's so yeah, powerful. Information inf- with my mother always says, and I think this is very true with information comes understanding, Yeah, you know, and it may be the same exact circumstance, but if you know why something is happening or why you can't do something or even why you can do something, it is, it looks and feels totally different than being stuck in the same situation without understanding why. Totally. Man, you've been through a ton, and I can just tell that you've been through so much more than we could ever cover in one podcast. <laughs> and oh, definitely, that, definitely. Yeah. But I, so I just have one more question for you. I mean, what, what, looking forward to the people who are dealing with anything similar, you have so much experience, you know, you, you've lived more than half your life at this point with uh, these anaphylactic issues. You have a lot of experience. For anyone else out there dealing with anything similar, what are the things that have been the most help to you on your journey? I think the most recent thing that I've learned that has really, really, really been helpful is that, and it's kind of a depressing fact, but it's something that has actually helped me immensely, which is that um, almost all of modern society, especially Western society, but any society that is structured around capitalism, um, is extremely ableist and it's not just ableism in the sense that like oh people don't like disabled people but america i can i can speak to america because i'm I'm an american it's my particular experience um and i've i've had to do a lot of reading and history both about my own you know life and just you know um for school things what i have come to learn is that America is founded on the concepts of eugenics. And many people think of eugenics as being something, a remnant from the 30s or the the 20s or the 30s, or they think about Planned Parenthood, or they think about all of these things that are in the past um, or small aspects that don't affect their life in particular. But that's not really true because eugenics isn't just we want people who look a certain way or perform a certain way, but it means that we don't tolerate anything that is not within the norm. Mm. And we don't tolerate anything that is not productive. And being productive has nothing to do with whether or not something is healthy or sustainable or viable or even right for you. And once you understand that so much of our society is based on 
eugenics and the ideology behind it, you better understand the healthcare you receive. You know, you will receive some of the, you, you will hear some of the most ablest things from the people who are supposed to be providing you medical care. Mm-hmm. And it's because we, it, it, it's because eugenics is the foundation for this society and it is the foundation for medical training. Even in the way that we talk about things, and I don't have an issue that necessarily pertains to me, but I think one of the biggest things that makes you understand how, how much eugenics informs our society is how we treat deaf people and how we treat blind people. People want deaf people to hear. And when I say that, I mean that there have been movements throughout history and even now to not teach deaf people sign language to, you know, there, there are, there are people who have deaf children now who refuse to learn sign language. And the way we treat deafness is, oh, you should just get a cochlear implant or do you have a hearing aid? And I think there's an automatic assumption when you talk to deaf people, there's an automatic assumption that they want a cochlear implant, that they want hearing aids. But if you talk to deaf people, you will understand that they actually oftentimes do not like the cochlear implant or the hearing aid. It's very loud. It's not when when you when you have hearing, when you are born with hearing or you don't have any hearing issues or you don't have very serious hearing issues. What most people don't understand is a cochlear implant is just a microphone that's been implanted into your brain. And so it magnifies all of the sounds all at once. Whereas if you are a person who has actual hearing that is relatively normally functioning, whatever that means, but you know, if you can hear, if you have a normal range of hearing, your brain hones in on certain sounds. We are able to tune in sounds or to, to, to tune, to focus in on sounds, to tune out sounds. And that's not the same thing as having a microphone in your head. And there's an automatic assumption that if you are deaf, that you will just fix your deafness because you can get these microphones in your head. And that way, the rest of the world doesn't have to worry about interacting with you in a way that makes them uncomfortable or inconvenienced. Um, Or even with with, uh, you, you may have experienced this with walking. We expect people to use a wheelchair and just show up and do all of the things that anyone can do because they're ambulatory and we make no real, we don't put any real thought into the accommodations that people need to use wheelchairs. We don't think about counter height in stores. We don't think about, um, you know, should all stores have buttons that open the door to, you know, automatically for people and not just on the way in, but also on the way out. Cause I need the door to automatically open for me leaving CVS as much as I need it to automatically open for me coming into CVS. And I, and I, and I just think that like so much of our society and, and so much of what we think about accommodations is, well, we've offered you these accommodations. So what more do you need? Hmm. Um, and even in the, in, in, when you think of accommodations, no church is required to be ADA compliant. No church is required to have a ramp for wheelchair accessibility. They're just not required to. 
you know, you think about, you know, even TikTok, there is a huge controversy with people putting on captions. And we're not talking about people who have, you know, their own neurodivergent issues where captioning is hard. And so, you know, it's hard for them to focus or even to, even if they use the auto captions, you know, they don't have the ability to be able to go in and easily fix the auto captioning so that it's actually transcribing correctly. Mm-hmm. And there are so many people who are like, well, I mean, but you like, why can't you just figure it out on your own? Why do I owe you captioning? But I'm saying all that to say there's so many different aspects to our society where disabled people are either excluded and nobody thinks twice about it. Or if disabled people show up, it's such a big deal that they're asking for any kind of accommodations. And people think, oh, you know, people don't understand that 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 is eugenics. It's not just ableism. But it's ableism that's rooted in the ideology that if you do not fit the norm, if it is inconvenient, then you don't deserve to participate. Mm. And I think even in, in when, when people think of the ADA, the ADA is a law that grants rights that has no agency behind it to enforce anything. Yeah. There is no one at the federal level who you can call and say, my ADA rights have been violated. The only thing that you can do is either hope that you're poor enough and it's egregious enough that you can get legal aid to take your case or that it's egregious enough and you have resources enough that you can afford the lawyer for yourself. But the way that we enforce ADA policies is we put it on the disabled person to be able to take legal action. And the legal action isn't even calling a federal agency or a state agency to say, hey, my ADA rights have been violated, which are just basically, by the way, your human rights. No, you actually have to go and get a lawyer and petition the court for some kind of justice. And even that is, you know, iffy. Um, And so. I think that we don't really understand how it's not just ableism. There is structural ableism that we deal with. One of the things that people really need to understand is how deeply eugenics informs so much of our public policy, so much of how we treat disabled people, so much of how we talk about disability, which is why there are so many disability activists who are actively trying to fight stigma and just get basic human decency, you know, afforded to them. And we other people and act as if disabled people don't have anything to give to society beyond inspiration porn. And it's like, <laughs> we, 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 I, The only reason why disabled people can be inspiration porn is because we live in a society informed by eugenics that makes no room for them. So it is an inspiration because it takes all kinds of feats of nature and will and, you know, like the acts of a community to be able to get people just the barest of minimum of access. And then when you're not this inspiration porn story, people look at you like, well, why aren't you making me feel good about myself? Like you exist to make me feel good about myself. I'm going to be inconvenienced by your presence. You should at least inspire me. And so I think (laughs) that the thing that I want people to know most about disability is that um, nobody gives a fuck about your disability, but you, Um, your doctor doesn't care. Your caseworker doesn't, nobody around you cares about your disability as much as you do. 
Um, and I think that many people will find that this is true of their partners, um, of their parents, of their siblings. You don't realize how many people are willing to be inconvenienced by your health until you are inconveniencing people with your health. And because eugenics is rampant in our country in ways that we don't understand and how we are socialized to both interact with people who are obviously disabled, but also people who have secret disabilities, because I'm sure you have experienced people who know you, um, who look at you and they're like, well, why can't you just do this? Yeah. As if you're having a good time, you, you, you know, like people, people will talk to you like, well, why can't you just be better? And they don't want you to be better for you. They want you to be better for them. I've heard that most from my doctors more than anyone else, old doctors that I don't see anymore. You right. know, why, why and, don't you and, just, why don't you just get over this and move on with your life? And it's like, if I, I, I wouldn't be here talking to you if that were an option for me. Right. And, and I think it's easy to say ableism because it is ableist, but like we really need to name a thing for what it is. And it is more insidious than just being ableist. It's eugenics. Yeah. I've never heard it put that way. You've really given me a lot to think about, you know, this idea of uh, like the split in our culture where it seems like one side wants everyone to conform and to fit in and the other side wants to accept people as they are and to open up the um the the parameters about what is acceptable in society because trying to fit everyone into these boxes is is so harmful um yeah and i feel like we're moving in this direction of like let's open up what is acceptable in society let's let's accept people as they are let's stop trying to conform people to fit into this you know i ideal this american ideal of what is supposed to be normal when in fact that doesn't fit for like a huge uh, amount of people and is incredibly harmful for a lot of people who are trying to fit into it it's like exactly. why can't why can't we show up as we are and be who we are and you know that includes uh you know so many different things like our health but also like our personalities and our identities and yes. it's you know that's the future i want is for people to be able to learn who they are and become more themselves and to have that be celebrated versus having to you know a adjust to a, a ridiculous outdated ideal about what is american or what is quote unquote normal when in fact those boxes have been you know sort of shackling people into things that make them miserable. Why are we doing this to ourselves? From my perspective, just from where I sit as like, not an activist, not somebody with any kind of like real, like I'm not, I, I, I make TikToks every now and then, I would never consider myself a content creator. But as someone who um, is trying to think about what I can do, um, so, as an aside, I'm currently not in school because I'm in a fight with vocational rehab for accommodations. Um, and so I've been thinking about like, where do I go from here? Because I don't want to do um, hospital-based uh, chaplaincy, um, but I still want to remain in healthcare. One of the things that I've been thinking about is that we need to talk about not just ableism, but in much of the same way we talk about racial issues and we talk about white supremacy and structural racism. I actually think that in order for us 
to be able to move forward, we probably need to start moving the conversation forward in terms of talking about structural ableism, Mm -hmm. you know, and that there are structures, you know, that are built into place, whether it's the physical structure or the social structures that we have or the institutional structures that we have that prevent disabled people from being able to get the care that they need, even when they have clear diagnosis and doctors have clearly said, this is the thing that my patient needs. There are still so many barriers to accessing the resources that we need for Mm -hmm. care or accessing the care itself. I mean, and I think that these are things that if we don't start talking about the structural issues, we won't be able to make any real progress because we'll constantly be talking about things that look like individual problems, you know, whether it's an individual institution or this is something that you have with this individual kind of disability, you know, we need to be start start talking about structural issues because whole communities have been screaming for forever. But because we don't talk about the structural quality of ableism, the institutional qualities of ableism, I think we, we, we aren't able to move past individual the an individual's fight for access or you know for care because we don't talk about the structures as a whole and i think we talk about them we talk about the economic issues in terms of structural problems like the economic access to care we talk about in terms of structural problems but we don't actually talk about the attitude towards disabled people being a structural problem and it's very much a structural issue. Um, And if we don't address the structural nature of it, then we don't actually get to address how society and institutions interact with disabled people on a large scale. It always will be reduced to this individual treated this individual unfairly. And what is the solution for these individual problems or even things like with uh, 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 educational accommodations, you know, we know that there are a whole bunch of things that help ADHD and, you know, children with um, autistic kids helping them to learn and be integrated into the classroom. But we also know that those things would just help everybody in general. But instead of saying, hey, this is something we should give to everybody in general, we're still making people with learning challenges beg for accommodations instead of accommodating everyone and making the process easier. So I think that, and and I think a lot of that has to do with the whole like American mindset between, but by, but behind hard work and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, that people have to earn everything that they're given. And it's like, if we constantly, if, if we are always living in a society where people have to earn what they're given, but disabled people are seen as less than because they're not as productive, then we will never earn what we need just for basic survival because we haven't put in enough work. Because yeah, which we is don't ridiculous. operate. I mean, disabled people are often working way harder to do, you know, to do what they're doing. Like, you know, Absolutely. I, I, I struggle with the... Uh, referring to myself as disabled without a diagnosis because, you know, you know, even though I use a wheelchair, even though I can't work because of my chronic illness, but I do know that like the amount of stuff that I get done inside of my chronic illness, I work 10 times harder for to do, you know, a 10th of what I used to be able to do. Um, Absolutely. And I, I value what I do now so much more, even though I'm doing so much less 
And if you look at it from like a productivity scale, it's way lower. But if you look at it from a value scale and from an effort scale, it's way higher. So yeah, mm-hmm. these things are not a one-to-one. And you're, you're absolutely right. We need, to, we need to look at the systemic issues. We need to look at the, um, the attitudes that we hold around these, these issues. You know, I don't know. This is really important stuff. I, I hate to wrap up this conversation because we're really hitting into some like really important stuff here. It's so valuable to think about. But I am unfortunately out of time. You mentioned your your TikTok and I would love to direct people towards um towards you and anything that you're sharing on social media or anything at all that you'd like to promote, please feel free. I don't actually so um because I'm waiting for voca- I'm fighting with vocational rehab for accommodations so that I can go back to school. I don't actually have any projects. Um I'm kind of in a holding space right now um where it's like I'm waiting for access to a resource to be able to continue my education and until I get that I'm kind of pretty much just um entertaining myself <laughs> on a daily basis um, <laughs> with like, you know, made up projects and my garden and um, just, you know, disassociating watching TikToks. But what I would like to say is that because um, I'm really proud of myself for this and sometimes I need a reminder. Um, I actually um, am a published author wow. as a divinity student. Cool. So I actually had an essay published in um Oh my God, it's not an anthology. If it was poetry, it'd be an anthology, but it's not. It is, and this is what makes me a bad divinity student. I'm a divinity student with no religion. Um, mm. I'm, I'm, I, I am a nun. Like, I don't know if you know about like millennials, people who don't have any affiliation to any religion, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to be a chaplain because um, people who don't have any spiritual affiliation also need spiritual guidance without mm. being proselytized too. Um, so I just want to say that I, I have an essay published in um oh my god i can't think of what it's called and i don't even know where the book is to be able to grab it but i I, i'm a published theologian and i'm proud of that so um maybe if if i can i will email you uh the book and that that i'm published in so that it can be shared because that's the thing i'm most proud of um at this point but other than that i think what i would ask for because i don't have anything going on right now except waiting for accommodations is good vibes from anyone listening that um i get the accommodations that i need and i can resume my uh desired path i love it that's awesome good vibes i think are the thing that people who listen to this podcast specialize in <laughs> i think so I, I i i so i listened to a bunch of shows before um i i told you that i would be a guest um, and cause I, I just wanted to understand, you know, what the format was yeah. and the thing that I really like about your show, um, is that people get to come on here and they get to talk about things that are hard, things that, um, nobody wants to listen to because, um, I forget who your guest was, but it was the lady and her husband and she has crests. Yeah. Evan and, um, Cammie. And, and yes. When you were talking about how, like, you know, people, people's eyes really do glaze over when you start mm-hmm. talking about your health. Like they'll, they'll, they'll ask as if they genuinely care and you'll start to genuinely answer. And then they're just like, Oh, this is yeah. way more yeah. than I was interested in learning. Um, and so what I like about the show is that people get to come on here and talk about the things that make other people's eyes glaze over in real life. And they get to feel heard and 
it this show gives us what people don't give us in real life, which is the chance to say, yes, this is hard. This is painful. Um, it can be very despairing at times, but I am also vibrant and full mm-hmm. of joy. And I have a quality of life that you may not understand, but it is very real. And it is not me being delusional or, you know, living in some kind of fairy tale world because we are acknowledging that this is hard and it is painful, but that we also have lives that are worth living um, and that we deserve respect and care and consideration as if we were abled because the reality is we will all be disabled one day. You know, you come into this world as a child, you are inherently disabled because you can't reach things. You can't carry things. You know, you need other people to care for you. And, you know, if you live long enough, you will eventually need the same care. So being abled is a temporary thing. And I think it's just so frustrating when people don't understand that their abledness is temporary and that they could find themselves in the same position as me or worse in the blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. And I like that this podcast gives us a chance to express our full humanity and that the people who are listening understand that we have full lives and that we may not have the same fullness that we expected hmm. before we became disabled. Yeah. Um, but you find but it. I don't you think, find a new but, way but, to do but, it. Yes, you find it. And most people I know who have some kind of illness would not trade it for wellness because it's made us so much better people. Mm-hmm. It makes you more patient. It makes you more compassionate towards others. I mean, I think I become more empathetic and more capable of empathy because of the things that I've experienced. Absolutely. Me too. I would never, I I can't imagine the person I would be if I didn't have my illness and from an emotional maturity standpoint, I, I wouldn't want to be another way. I mean, if that, if that makes sense, like, like the, the amount, thing. <laughs> the, the person <laughs> you know? that I am, like the amount of just, just, I feel like I'm such a better community member, such a better citizen, just a better person in relation to how people are supposed to interact with other people. It's made me such a much better person that I can't imagine who I would be if I didn't have this. And I, 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 I would not trade my health to find out. Yeah. Wow. That's a very powerful note to end things on. Christy, you did a phenomenal job today. Thank you so much for sharing your story and some really important ideas that we really need to be talking about. And you know, there are people that want to hear about your health. This, This show exists because there is a hunger for hearing about other people's health journeys because we feel like we're not supposed to talk about it and it just bottles up. And, and and when in fact, like when you can hear other people talk about it, 
it can release some of that pressure, you know? And when yes. you get to share yourself, it releases even more of that pressure. So, um, yeah, and it's so hard to have other people's eyes glaze over when you want to talk about it, but there are people who want to hear it. And, mm-hmm. you know, and this is a community of those people. So, you you did a wonderful job today. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters Schmidt, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, and Alexandria Henderson. And our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.